0: Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'd like to take a moment and mention that the Digital Campus at ClarkHealingsFund.org provides artists with a peer network, expert feedback, and of course, crucial business training that all working artists need to thrive in a changing marketplace. Registration is easy and quick. Go to ClarkHealingsFund.org and join the thousands of artists who currently enjoy the CHF Digital Campus. Now, our guest today is Willie Bo Richardson. Willie is a painter based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's an alumni of CHF's Art Business Accelerator program. Visually, Willie's work is abstract and colorful with a repeating motif of stripes. In fact, his daughter and a few leading voices in the art world ask if he knows how to paint anything but stripes. What I know of Willie's work comes from my own experience in corporate life. Most of the art in corporate and public settings in general is almost an anomaly. We either brush past it or reverence it awkwardly, but we don't feel its power. Willie subtracts the trappings that condition our response to the art the frame the pedestal and weaves art into the setting itself so we can receive its full impact without the scripted response now the albuquerque museum recently acquired one of willie's pieces for their permanent collection and he's currently working with richard levy gallery while pursuing corporate environment projects that include wall art licensing mid-size installations in european healthcare and gerontology settings his long-term goal is to create totally immersive corporate environments willie welcome to the show thank you so much thanks for having me now uh my first question is what's it like having graduated after two years in the business accelerator program for artists
1: i'd say that that for me what i really got out of chf was on two main levels the first level is the the nuts and bolts how to be professional so let's call that straightforward marketing and sales tools and, and, um, and, guidelines. and I think that before, you know, striving towards being a, a middle-class artist where I'm able to support my family through, through painting, and I was almost getting there, but there was a little bit of a mad cook in the kitchen, sort of slide by night, do it by the seat of your pants, uh, know-how and attitude that I had. And so it was always either random or a miracle if I made a contact with somebody and then followed up and then made something happen. So I didn't know anything about, you know, very, very basic tools like a CRM, for example. So on one level, I can run my business the way any entrepreneur or individual business owner could do it. And then there's another level, and that is working with the other fellows and and learning side by side. And I think that's not totally putting a finger on it, but it's a little bit having to do with understanding the pace at which things grow. And having patience with myself, because just like planting a tree, there might be this upfront work where let's say you go get the tree, bring it in a truck, put it in the ground, water it, feed it. And then there seems to be this tendency that I had before, which was then to stand there and wait for the leaves to grow saying, I've done my job. I've given it sunlight, I've given it water, but why isn't it growing? And I think watching the fellows working uh, side by side and together, I really learned to better understand what that case actually is.
0: Well, it sounds like it's been a, a good program for you. And uh, I'm curious, do you think you've accomplished things with that tribe of cohorts and collaborators that you wouldn't have without them?
1: Well, absolutely. Again, it's not, it's not so much on, on the level that I'm trying to get to. It's not so much a a nuts and bolts level. We did put a show together and we did have an experience of working together and we've met in person and that's wonderful. But I think that the the nugget of what I'm trying to get to here is more on a, let's call it an emotional level, like a a deeper understanding of how the entrepreneurial practice and the artistic practice are are possibly one and the same.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you have a fair amount of experience in licensing your work for corporations. How did you get interested in that area? Uh, Why corporate environments?
1: Well, it, it started out a little bit of an idealistic thing where I wanted to have my art be available for the middle class. And I think one of the best compliments I ever had was at the end of an exhibition when a janitor at the gallery coming through and cleaning up and he stopped over to pull me aside. And he said, you know, something to the effect of, I I normally don't like abstract art, but I do like, but I really love your colors and I I love your work. And then we talked. And I think that there's a tendency in the art world to take a little bit of a, well, let's say a, a lot of a snobby road. And I think there's attempts to backtrack out of that but i don't think it's on a whole working and so for me the idea of putting reproductions into environments that people see daily so whether that's at their job or in a resort or hotel it's actually an ambition of mine is to put my work into in front of people you know not just those who have the um the uh, like the opportunity with income and education to you know appreciate fine art and when i say appreciate fine art i mean an idea that they appreciate fine art because I think actually everybody does. The question is whether or not we are afraid of it or not. And there's also companies that I work with too that, that put art into uh, homes, So it's not just the corporate environment. And there's a, a really wonderful company called Turning Art. I signed up with them a number of years ago, very wholeheartedly because their model is a little bit like renting videos, something akin to Netflix when you're still getting a CD in the mail. So the idea is you have a a print on the wall by an artist and then you rotate out that print and and another work comes. You can order, you can basically order what you want to see. You get online, order the print you want to see, and that's on your wall. And then when you're done with that, send it off and the next one comes in the mail. And so it really started on this idealistic level and then I should also say it also started because it's an additional income, that it's a wonderful way to make passive income after having a, a master's degree and working towards being an artist after enough years of working in the back of a gallery or, or having some other you know, side job, I really wanted to see my main income coming through multiple streams. And so it's, it's one of the streams of income.
0: So Willie, tell me a little bit more about some of the specific projects you've done in this line of work.
1: Well, for example, right now I'm working with a ketamine clinic in Norway, and ketamine is they're having very good results with very high level depression, so you know people that are bordering on suicide. And so what we're doing is a one meter by three meters so approximately 10 foot aluminum panel painting. and this is in, in the office. Another one that I'm also working on right now is uh, a 20foot panel that's in an old folks home in illinois
0: that's uh pretty fascinating and so you've got a lot going on with sort of original work and you had mentioned reproductions and so help me understand when each applies so you're not always putting originals in corporate environments or in medical settings or people's homes but sometimes reproductions how does it get decided whether it's going to be an original or this probably is a dumb question but how does it get decided whether it's going to be an original or a reproduction
1: Right. Well, no, actually, it's a very good question because, uh, for example, this project in Illinois, the 20-foot panel is a seamless printed panel. It's not a reproduction of a painting. This is actually uh, me working on putting paintings together, stitching them together. Because of the nature of my paintings, these vertical strokes, uh, I can stitch them together. Actually, a dream of mine is to have like an airport walkway that extends the full 100 feet. And this is something where the printing technology can actually produce something longer than an original painting. And I do paintings, originals, where I'll do diptychs and triptychs and so on, but the printing has other options. So sometimes it's that, that's a, a technology thing, taking advantage of the technology, and sometimes it's also price. The cost of an original painting, the same size, could be three times more than a printed work.
0: You know, I think a lot of people see that and and turn away from reproductions because, you know, uh, uh, on the surface, they don't sell for as much as original work. But And they say, I'm only ever going to do originals. But then they realize that income, or as you put it, multiple income streams comes from uh, repeat business, uh, which is sort of built into the reproductions uh, part of things. So I think a lot of uh, artists are strongly interested in licensing, especially for the corporate market, because they perceive there to be a lot of money there. So... Let me ask you, how does one break into that if you've never done it before? It seems like a big mystery and an iron wall of no information on how to get in. Right. Yeah. So,
1: well, and first of all, I just want to backtrack a little bit about the history of in the fine art world, there is definitely a, it's kind of a no-no to uh, license your work and to do reproductions. And that stems from a history where the technology was different. In order to make one poster print, uh, you had to commit to 5,000 prints made in China and then shipped overseas. So, you know, the total cost for one poster print was $7,000. Today, we can post images on a computer, pick one, print it on demand, and then send that to the customer. And so what that does is it creates a situation, whereas before everything chosen, the work chosen had to be safe. It had to be non-religious, non-sexual, non-political safe, boring. And so of course the the art world would poo-poo that because it doesn't give total freedom to the artist. Today we can get online, search through images, and it's up to the clients. And so there's no risk in picking the artist. So I just want to say that first. And then how to get started. The way I started was years ago, I was in this little bookstore and there was a book called The Artist and Graphic Designer's Handbook. And I took that book, went through it. It's not so much a how to as much as just a long list of licensing groups and galleries and, you know, different things specific for, for artists would be the licensing groups. That's how I got into it. But really, if anybody just goes online and Google searches licensing group or Google searches art consultants, they're going to find lists of companies. And the other thing, too, is that. Oftentimes, the art consultants are very open to whatever they think they can sell and not so interested in one's resume, which is really good for artists getting started because it's that catch-22 of how do you get that first gallery. The first gallery wants to see that you have a resume. So, Whereas the art consultants uh, do not want to see a resume. They just want to see good work.
0: Yeah, I always wondered about that. Why, why an MFA necessarily means that a, uh, that a work of art is, is better <laughs> than one without it, or, or why it's better if uh, someone else likes it uh, than if just I like it. I, I don't buy it based on how many other people like it, but I get it. Exactly. It's kind of funny. Well, that's good insight. Uh, so I'm interested in your 10,000 foot sort of level goal for corporate environments. What does your complete environment concept look like?
1: Right. Okay. Now, and this is, this was the, the big, bad, ugly goal that I set out to do with the Clark Healings Fund. The challenge was make it so scary and big that you think you can never accomplish it. And I'm making small steps towards that. But the idea is that when somebody walks into a building, they, the art as something separate from the environment, the art is framed or sitting on a pedestal. It's also how the architects and engineers think, you know, when they designate the art for a building, they say the art will go in this spot here, you know, whether it's a sculpture or painting. And what my big, bad, ugly goal is, is to completely integrate into the environment so that one does not think they're looking at art, but they're sitting on a couch and the textiles, the pillows, uh, the wall coverings, different architectural elements, uh, we call it materials for the built environment, but those uh, my paintings are integrated into that. Yeah,
0: that's kind of like uh, what we were talking about earlier with removing, uh, I think what I introduced you, removing the pedestal, removing the frame. Uh, so can you help us imagine what kinds of spaces this could easily happen in, you know, especially maybe ones that wouldn't occur to us? Uh, are we thinking of airports? Uh, and hosp- and waiting lounges and, or hospitals or, or what?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, there's, let's say, the, the higher expensive projects like picture a Google campus. And that could include elements when you're also outside and the materials that we can print on, like plexi and glass. Um, you know, these could be elements that are either part of a park as you're walking through. They could be part of the glass as you you know step through into the building. It could be any waiting area or lounge it could be corporate environments basically any public space you can imagine so libraries airports basically anything that has a big enough room for a lot of people to be in lobbies of hotels and resorts things like that
0: so i'm thinking of you know the google campus and airports and even libraries one might think a library is a fairly calm place until you visit the new york public library and and while calm, it is bustling, let's put it that way. And uh, I I wonder what experience you're hoping people will have um, through this conceptualization of a complete environmental concept with fine art integrated in these, um, one might call them tumultuous or even sometimes unpleasant environments.
1: Right. OK, so there's a, a really wonderful, inspiring book uh, that I often recommend to friends. And it's by Robert Irwin. And the book is called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing Seen. And he put it very simply that, you know, in this day and age where we have wonderful technology, the engineer will plan out a highway that gets us from A to B in the safest, most efficient way. And that's a great thing. But the artist, if the artist could get together with the engineer, the artist might say, you know what, if we take that same highway and just veer a little bit here over to the east, then we could run alongside this river, and it'd be a beautiful view. So it's not so much. Um, let's say it's it's a, it's a quiet revolution. It would not necessarily be that somebody walks in and says, "Wow, look at the art," or says anything. It might just be that they feel a certain way. And uh, I think that one of the catchphrases that architects are using right now, which is wonderful is biophilic principles and biophilic design. And so this is the idea that a lot of research is showing that going out into nature, sitting down next to a fern under a tree with lots of oxygen is very helpful for one's spirit. And that going into a, a boxed closed environment is not. Um, but that doesn't mean we all need to start running around outside because with biophilic principles and biophilic design, we can start, taking square edges and rounding them. We can start using, for example, with my paintings, the the principles are that there's these uh, vibrations or reverberations of color that are uneven. So it's almost, uh, you could say the same principles as wabi-sabi, like a Japanese garden, where you you walk through a a Japanese garden and, and it's meant to be a little bit precarious, that you walk through and you have to pay attention. And those same principles are the principles that Frank Lloyd Wright used in in his architecture. Um, So it's not necessarily reinventing the, the wheel. It's more about admitting, here we are in this place in time with incredible technology, which can do all these things. Can we just get the architects and the engineers to work with the artists? That's kind of the idea. Can we get the artist in a little bit more on the ground floor and start integrating in and and maybe that's unrealistic. I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of what I've been exploring for the past uh, two and a half years now.
0: Well, I think part of the thing you referenced earlier, which is pick a goal so big that you don't think you can get there uh, and then map out what incremental reverse engineer it to determine what incremental progress would look like and then take a few steps um, and suddenly the goal starts seeming less impossible. You know, the idea of the of feasibility of something like that is it's in our minds, really. Uh, it's feasible if we say it's feasible in a way. I, I think that's what Banksy would say, but who knows what Banksy would say. But I, um, I want to ask you this. You're kind of describing a way in which people collaborate and create an environmental reality, um, environmental meaning, of course, the space in which you know, we move, breathe, have our existence at any given time, whether it's a corporate space or whatever. How is that different, do you think, or is it really different from the way that we currently create interiors?
1: This is also something that Robert was talking about in, in, um, in this book, that when there is a designated funding for art, let's say there's a public building and they've got a 2% designation that's going to go towards art, you know, part, part of the total budget. What they'll do is they'll have the engineers, architects, city planners, everybody gets together and they design a building, everything you know, without yet even thinking about what the artist has to say or which artist will be chosen. And then they designate a, a square and let's call it that square could be, it could be anything. It could be like a, a giant pedestal that's near a super highway wraparound in Dallas. You know, it could also be a wall space. But the point is, is that it's just a designated blank spot where now they'll put out a call for artists and they find an artist and then the art artist comes in and does something site specific or the artist does, you know, which is more integrated or the artist you know, brings in one of their own own works of art. That's all fine and good. It's just that if the artist was brought in a little bit earlier into the game, there would be more integration. So what does that look like? Integration could be colored panes of glass on the building. The artist is, is last in line. So after the architects, engineers, city planners, then you have the art consultants, which then connect with the interior designers, and then from there the artist chosen. So the artist really the the last one in line, and I'm trying to get further up into the food chain. So I'm I'm approaching companies like Kohler and it, these these big slow moving corporate giants that move so slowly that. I actually become frustrated. I, you know, I'm doing everything as, as the game plan says, it's just that the amount of time it takes to hear back from them could be a year. So as I do get impatient, then I run off and do other projects. So another thing that I've been doing is uh, working with textiles where it's not so much on this big corporate level, but actually going backwards the other way to the indigenous level. So I spent some time in Mexico city in December and, went down to Oaxaca and then Teotitlan, which is one of the the weaving villages and met up with a a really wonderful artist and weaver. And right now um, we're doing a project together. Uh, We're doing one where it's a commissioned painting where I actually took the image and, and he's having, you know, the artisans weave one and then one where it's actually a collaboration where we actually, it's more on the level of how he dyes the yarn and then He has a certain amount of freedom to interpret uh, what I send him. So so there's all different levels that that this can happen on.
0: So, yeah, the sales cycle, obviously, for a corporate environment is quite long. um, And one does not get into corporate B2B sales uh, unless one can accept that. You know, obviously, you know, you're not going to close deals uh, within, you know, 30 days of, of pitching or anything even close to that, really. Um, too many stakeholders, too many moving parts, the wheels turn slowly. And uh, so that's the trade-off for the possibility of, you know, greater capital, whether it's in your industry or mine or or what have you. I wonder um, though, if you want to sell people on this concept behind your proposal, um, do you have to go beyond the traditional B2B sort of pitch deck and samples? And I'm, I'm thinking of you know, multi-wall projections like Van Gogh, Starry Night, digital exhibit in Paris, textile printing, printing on glass. Do you, do you want or need to access more complex ways of showing people what you have in mind versus say a PowerPoint presentation?
1: Right. So far I am sticking with the basics. I think that in some places I'm running my head up against the wall. And I met with a textile designer in Connecticut and it was just an introduction at a cocktail party kind of situation. And, um, He was like, let me get this straight. You are a working artist, make a living being an artist and you want to get into textiles. And he just like shook his head and and said, like, you know, you should really just go home and and be happy and and be an artist. I don't know if that's an industry specific thing, if there's certain industries that aren't open to it or if it's just, you know, that person just giving me good advice because why would I get into something that would pay less and be more work? <laughs> but then there's other situations where there is this sign of a door opening or the possibility of a door opening. And so that would more be like with Kohler, where I chose to uh, partner up with an a interior designer because she's, she knows that language. And it seems that every every field you go into, there's these certain words they like to use. And if you don't use those specific words, then they won't take you in a little bit like a resume. But she actually was able to get a half an hour of FaceTime in Las Vegas with my proposal. And the proposal was the, the straightforward PDF PowerPoint and you know introductory letter type thing. But she said that that the response was that they were very excited because it it may be an idea whose time has come, that their printing technology is where where they are now, is they're very excited about the possibility of different colored faucets and fixtures and and surfaces, but where you can actually trade them out, exchange them. So a little bit of a a rotating possibility and that that could be a fit.
0: We're, of course, always surrounded by people that, tell us, oh, don't do that. You'll fail. And it's almost uh, like when we were kids, right? Don't step on a crack. You'll break your mother's back. Don't look under the bed. The boogeyman will get you. There was always somebody that says, you know, don't do that thing. You, you know, you'll get gotten. It won't it won't go well for you. And, uh, and I always remember that we laugh those things off now as adults, but then when do we get to our second adulthood and laugh off the other naysayers? So um, I don't know Willie I've always taken it that in my own career um, I've always pursued things that I regarded as harder and riskier uh, than what my peers were doing partly because there were fewer people doing it and so the competition immediately faded you know to a slim line of just a few of us you know in there uh, once we got outside you know the the shallow end of the pool and I liked that and to a certain degree that's you know, that was the New York proposition for me is I, I'd rather be a small fish in a big pond and have to sort of fight my way to become the big fish in the big pond, you know, rather than just start out where it's easy. So I, I like that you're, you're taking the hard road and I like that you've uh, developed the chops to do that. Um, but you're committed not just to this vision of a complete environmental concept for public spaces, corporate life. Um, and committed not just to working incrementally along the way and ensuring that you it's not all, or, all in or nothing, it's, uh, it's both, that you live your life as you on the way uh, with lots of successes. It, you, you still make other art, take other projects while you're taking those steps. So, um, I mean, that's the gutsiest thing you can do. But you have a, a, yet another, if I may say, a third commitment that you're sort of pinned to. And that is, for you, ecology and sustainability are paramount. You insist on it. And so I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us about that a little bit. How did environmental standards, uh, in particular, become important in the way that you work?
1: Yes. Well, and also, thank you. I love what you're saying. And that I think that you actually did put a finger on one of the biggest lessons I got working with you and Elizabeth and the fellows at Clark Keelings Fund was this. This similar path of fearlessness, of, entrep- of being an opportun- entrepreneur and artist, that it's the same fearlessness. And of course, fearlessness actually starts with fear. You know, the, it's a project, it seems scary, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and then it's a little less scary. And then the next project, it's a bigger project same amount of fear, but now I also know I can get through it. So,
0: heck, uh, Willie, I think that's why people climb Everest sometimes. You know, we have that old cliche, you know, why did you climb uh, that mountain? Because it was there. And I think what some of the thrill seekers are really saying is, I climbed it because it was scary and you wouldn't. And I climbed it so I could hear you ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> so I I look at you as, as an Everest climber and the things that you're mapping out. Aren't just an ordinary life of you know uh, walking down the sidewalk, but they're your Everest. But I, I didn't mean to cut in. So so tell me more about the environmental state. Right,
1: right. No, <laughs> no. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it and it's and one little track back again is um, you know my entire let's call it working career beginning with undergrad has been all about that. You know, there was always the naysayers. Like, you know, you, my parents were always supportive of the, the people close to me, but those in the know when I was in undergrad said I should study graphic design because there's no future in art. And then when I went to graduate school, at that time, painting was dead. This was in at Pratt Institute. So I was in New York in 99 and 2000 and, and Everybody was saying, painting is dead. You shouldn't keep painting. When I first started getting into reproductions, it was a big no-no living in New York City. And people were saying it was going to ruin my career. So, so every step of the way has been all the experts and those in the know telling me not to do things. So it doesn't mean when somebody says to not do something that it's smart. It just means that you know, you've you got to figure out which, which things are the ones that people are afraid of. But back to the question. So wait, what is the
0: question? <laughs> That's funny. Well, we can riff on this. We can riff on this stuff all day. But uh, I, uh, the question was, you know, you, you take. I mean, because people will tell you don't do this too. Don't pin yourself to a niche cause. But uh, how do you? How did environmental standards become important in the way uh, that you work?
1: Right. Okay. So first of all, I, I was born in Santa Fe. It's, it's pretty hard to not fit within the stereotype. But yes, my parents were hippies, and I was raised on healthy food and. And nature has always been an important part of my life. Uh, what actually really kicked it off for me, though, was a couple of years ago, and I've actually lost track uh, now. Maybe it was something like three or four years ago, I became sensitized to solvents and, and it happened immediately. So basically, I was in a class. Uh, I was teaching painting at the time uh, here at Santa Fe University, and I was showing students how to wash their brushes, Opened up the fire cabinet a couple times, and nothing, not a lot of exposure, but went home feeling a little funny, and then had a headache and nausea for the rest of the day, and then the next morning I woke up with what felt like a hangover, and then from that moment on, I could not set foot in my own painting studio or my own classroom and without immediately becoming sick, which was obviously a really big experience. Uh, you know, I had been working for years and was finally reaching this place in my life where I felt like I was getting to, to what I was striving for, um, in being an artist, and just saw that all crumble away. So long story short, the, the best thing to do in that situation is take yourself away from the, you know, whatever it is that's causing the problem. So I took a six-month break from painting, was very lucky in that there was an industrial hygienist. Uh, her name is uh, Monona Rasol. She's actually a really wonderful person, like a living treasure, in her 90s. And by chance, um, she was consulting Santa Fe University and the Santa Fe Opera for how to for safer studio practices and and, and safer environmental uh, practices. And so I immediately contacted her, and she was able to guide me. And then I came into uh, contact with a, a Five-month colon cleanse, and also started getting into um, qigong and, and martial arts, which which brought me back to the point where I could at least be at a safe baseline. Because before, I I could not even go into a Home Depot without being sick, or walk down a detergent aisle at the grocery store without feeling sick. If somebody at the airport was doing their their nails, I would be sick for the rest of the day. I mean, it, it was basically the world became a scary place, and so I got back to a, a healthy baseline and also changed my studio practices, changed the mediums that I work with, and started using respirator and ventilation. But it was a, a major firsthand experience in terms of what's out in the world and the chemicals that we're putting into the, into the environment. And so I made a commitment to myself and others that I would only work with those that are working towards the, the safest practices possible, you know, which is sometimes more expensive. Uh, but that does not go against my primary go- goal, which is high quality. So safe for the environment and and high quality are often can be hand in hand.
0: well let's ask where this dovetails then with i mean obviously you're you're pitching um, some cases some pretty sizable companies, and many of these companies have stated social missions, uh, corporate missions that overlap with the issue of sustainability and and environmental. Uh, awareness and so on. Sometimes they don't. Uh, and sometimes companies, you know, don't want to be told that it'll be this way or, or nothing. Right. And so you work with these big companies. How do you vet their sustainability uh, practices? And uh, what, you know, criteria do you use to decide which companies you're going to work with? And And have you had difficulty maintaining, you know, that standard, that high standard, given that it makes you selective?
1: I actually find that it's very simple, that there are industry standards, that it's uh, made public. And once you know the terms, like, you know, for example, lead certified, that it's really not difficult to know who, to know which companies are, are in line with those practices. And the first company that I started working with, uh, Design Techs, which unfortunately closed the whole section that I was um, about to get on board with, they were innovators in print technology in terms of environmental practices. So instead of vinyl, they had a, a, a non-PVC alternative, which had um, some kind of a, a pulp fiber instead of vinyl.
0: So do you find that um, you encounter a lot of pushback or, or that it, it's pretty costly for you to maintain this standard and, and still pitch corporations who may not have this as part of their mission?
1: You know, the the short and easy answer is that I don't work with partnerships that don't have the same vision and goals that I do.
0: Well, I I think uh, that's key, actually. I think that's a, you know, that's something that as an entrepreneur myself, obviously in a different field, it took me quite some years uh, to come to. Um, And, you know, early on in my entrepreneurial life, I decided that not every client is my client. And I would tell people that, you know, hey. Uh, this either works for you. It doesn't. Not every my client is my client. And uh, some people thought that was arrogance, but it, it took me a long time to develop a sense of why that was. And now I can articulate it more clearly that, you know, if we're not aligned on what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to achieve it, then it's just like a political campaign. You know, I don't belong on your campaign if, if we're not agreed on what we're going for and how we're going to get there. So Um, in the area of, I think, any kind of entrepreneurship, you have to decide where potential clients align with your values, and they they don't always. And that's okay. Early on, it may feel bad to let them go, uh, but it feels a lot better when you you find their replacement, which comes pretty soon once you've defined what it is you're you're committed to. So I love that about what you're saying. Right.
1: Yeah, I also think we're in a good time right now. I, I think that if you just look at organic food, 10 years ago to organic food today, where I I think I just heard the numbers that the organic food on in the U S market now is 4% of the market. And 10 years ago, that was, it was only 2%. So that's, that's double what it was. And it also made its way from, let's say the little, actually I was living in Austin in um, 94 where the first whole foods existed. And it was this little hippie store you know, where the, the, the whole thing was really, really unattractive. And now we think of organic food and, and it's associated with movie stars and elite status and healthy living and athletes. And, you know, so I think that our, our culture is actually really receptive to the idea of putting something out into the world that is um, doing the least amount of harm on the environment as possible.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's not all done. I mean, I I still think uh, uh, when you talk about avocado toast, it still is the <laughs> the twig boy presence, you know, the the hipster <laughs> presence that's doing it. They're not avocado toast isn't mainstream yet, and I hope it never will be, especially if you put harissa on it. But but yeah, organic stuff is everywhere to the point that I'm seeing even local dairies uh, in in New York State, um, you know, dairies that have, that are not the big organic brands, you know, like Horizon and so forth that are, hey, this is just our ordinary, you know, organic 2% and so on, you know, milk. Uh, So it's, it is totally mainstream. So I like what you're saying. And ultimately it gives you a chance to mainstream some of your other ideas about public spaces, corporate spaces, and how design is done too. I couldn't help but uh, when you were talking about sometimes the artist is engaged last, right? The artist is the afterthought we will bring them in. It's almost like you're the decorator. The architect has done their work, the planners, and, you know, you're not part of the project. You're part of the decoration on the project. You know, daddy got the tree. You can hang the candy cane. And uh, it's annoying, uh, it, but it, but I can parallel that to another industry where we've started to see the mainstreaming of a shift away from that kind of mentality and that's in the area of web design which is also very visual in the area of web design um, for quite some years you got your developer involved first and the visual designer was involved uh, pretty close to the same time and the the visual designer and and developer would put together the website and then you would finally hire a copywriter to write some stuff to stick into the boxes that were already created and the text had to fit the boxes and it, you know, we want a headline here and we want a blurb here. And uh, it wasn't very good at producing a, an effective message. And so now most people have gotten the, uh, the idea championed by a company called Marketsmiths Inc., which writes websites uh, for corporate audiences that... That copy is first. <laughs> copy. You start with copy. You get the writers involved right away. The creative professional is not the add-on at the end that you as an afterthought. Let's let's sprinkle uh, some creativity on the top of the on the foam of the latte of the project. But let's get them involved right away at the beginning before you even get the developer, perhaps. So I like what you're saying, and I do believe it's totally possible for you to make that same cultural shift because your argument has the same integrity uh, that it does in that visual design field. So um, I don't know if that's encouragement, but it's meant to be.
1: It is. It is. And I actually feel like that was one of the things that I was so attracted to Clark Hewings for, that there's all these disruptors happening. There's the art fairs and the internet and a whole paradigm shift with things like Instagram and Etsy and all these other platforms. And so the, even the idea of what an artist is, is shifting. And I think that creates all these opportunities for artists, not only to start making a, a living, but also to inject themselves in, into the world, you know?
0: Well, I want to uh, sort of wind down by asking you just a little bit about a couple of context questions. So here's a fun one. If you could have any writer or curator or gallerist, comment on your work, contextualize it, analyze it? Do you know who that might be? It's a good
1: question. I should say something a little bit about curating in general, which is that the curator used to have a pretty conservative position. They would take art, a group of artists or an artist and provide context. And so they were a little bit behind the scenes. Now we find curators that are like the rock stars or artists themselves. And I think that one of the ways they do that is by engaging in, in more political art or um or social art. And so what that does is it it a little bit undermines the old school aesthetic artist. You know, and I, I say aesthetic, I, I basically would quantify myself as a modernist. I believe in truth and beauty, you know, as silly as that sounds. So, of course, there would be the curators that still work with painters, like, uh, I don't want to pronounce his name wrong, Scott Rothkoff at the Whitney. Let's just say there's some very, you know, big, obvious ones, go to any major institution where they appreciate painting, and and of course, that would be great. But there's also curators that are lesser known, um, like Katie Crocker, for example, who Um, recently got a master's in curating in San Francisco and then went on to write her own books and somebody like that, who could circle back around and um, provide context. The goal of the curator is to be able to say the things that I can't say. You know, my job is to put something out visually and the curator's job is to provide the context. And I'm, and I could even put writer and curator into the same category
0: well, so what do you uh, disagree with in the current trends that you're seeing in curation most? What what bothers you that you think we need to change?
1: Right. Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's it's not all bad. I think that it's, you know, the times are changing and, and everybody is on board that this is a postmodern time. And um, a little backdrop on that would, would be that Modernism the way I see it is we finally got to the point where we can pull ourselves out of our own time and place and look at any culture and look at the artistic endeavors of humans since 40,000 years ago or or 100,000 years ago and that we can we can tap into any time and place and and respond and have a dialogue. And so let's call that post call that modernism. Postmodernism is this idea of well, yeah, that's great that you came up with that, but you're still a, a European white man. <laughs> and meanwhile, there are people in from different cultures, different backgrounds who have been doing this all along. And so, postmodernism is, is a nod and acknowledgement of that, which is a great thing. At the same time, I think there's a little bit of a of a, like a uh, my poop doesn't stink. That comes with postmodernism, which is that, like, I can get angry and let's get, you know, riled up and let's get political and let's get feminist and let's get all these things which are great. They're wonderful. Yes, it's time for social revolutions. Yes, it's time for, you know, the politics is that we're in. It's, it's like in the toilet. Yes. Um, it's just the question is, is art the perfect medium for that? And, and yes, there is a place for art to be politically engaging and socially engaging. Um, But art also has a a different history. And the history that I'm more interested in is more to do with something that has lasting power. So it's not the the thing that's happening at the surface. It's not the times. It's not the politics. It's not the, the social event. It's as simple as our own breath, which has been with us all along. This very steady friend, you could say, and so you know the goal of my painting is to 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 bring people back to that space. It's a very simple space. So it's really not asking for a lot. It's very simple. Um, but for for the curating practice to to properly provide context for my work is to be in alignment with with this mode of thinking and And this mode of thinking that I'm talking about, which is more centering, more to do with lasting staying power. What I mean by lasting staying power is, you know, the thing that carries me through at the end of the day, you know, like I've I've been with my wife for two decades now and and we have a daughter and, and I feel good about the stability that I have in my life. And this is the kind of stability that I'm trying to share. So it's not the most exciting thing on the planet, but I think it's nourishing and, and, and good for people. So we are right now in this culture where we're totally consumed by excitement. Everything is, is like Red Bull. Everything is, is like monster. Everything is, you know, even in politics, the language that we hear, it's like, did you hear him? He slammed him. He, you know, he, he ripped him apart. He, you know, it's like, we're, we're getting very overly engaged and aggressive. And I think that the curators are getting caught up in, over engagement. And so what I'm trying to do is pull us out of this engagement. So that's that's again just like finding corporate partners um, that are that have share the same goals that I do. It's the same with the curators. It's, it's actually pretty simple. And there are curators out there that that I love and admire.
0: You've been listening to the Thriving Artist podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healing's Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Willie's work, visit williebowrichardson.com. For more information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhealingsfund.org donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Willie. It's been really great having you.
1: Thank you so much. to